If you talk to my wife, you'll discover um, very quickly that I'm an internal processor. Can I get a silent in your heart amen from all the internal processors who just a, a nod of agreement this is probably the most I'll get out of you. Um, and so uh, um, that's difficult sometimes for Jen who's an external processor uh, because um, she's wondering what on earth is going on in here uh, and then occasionally something will pop out and she'll go, oh, interesting. Uh, and it's not often just in the context of me and her hanging out. Sometimes in a group she'll discover things about what I've been thinking about and that's news to her. Um, but it's for whatever reason the door opens, it's the right time for the internal processor to express something. And so I'm, I'm wired that way and so I've uh, been on overdrive since last Friday, um, processing uh, the events of Friday and then all the subsequent um, you know, emotion and activity in our country and in particular the response and the um, way that Christians have uh, reacted and, and wrestled with what's going on here. So I want to bring some reflections. Um, it's an unbelievable privilege to be able to do this, an unbelievable privilege, and I, this has been probably the, the weightiest sermon I feel, most important sermon I've written in, in a few years. I sent it to my theologian friend to, uh, to have a good look over because I want to get it right today. Um, and this is obviously just a, just some of my reflections, and, and everyone is on this internal processing or external processing journey, working through all of this stuff. But I want to just bring some observations, and I want to try and work through some quite a bit of stuff this morning. So I'm going to stay on on my I'm going to avoid the rants. Lord help me. Um, so here's there's a number of reflections I just want to bring this morning to to what's happened or observations. And here's my first observation uh, from the last um, last nine days. First is this, these events remind us that the Christian belief is that every human being is created in the image of God. Every single human being is created in the image of God. In Genesis 1.27, it says that God created human beings in his own image, male and female. And this doctrine is known as Imago Dei. Um, and so therefore every human being is packed with dignity and value and has the same worth. And every human being is packed with goodness and kindness and compassion because they are made in the image of a God who is good and kind and compassionate. And as we have seen in the last nine days, Christians do not have a monopoly in terms of responding with goodness, kindness, and compassion. And so I felt sometimes I've been looking on at the response, and you can just click through some of these photos, uh, but you know, the response, the tens of thousands who have gathered in vigils, driven, walked, made their way, the, the, the hundreds, the thousands of cards that have been written, the flowers that have been poured out, the, the, uh, our Prime Minister's response and in terms of compassion and empathy, uh, the way that uh, we've seen, uh, you know, people gather um, and these stunning expressions of love. And sometimes I think as a Christian, I'm like, whoa, you guys are acting like Christians. Are you allowed to do that? And it's like, of course they're allowed to do that because they're made in the image of a God. And so there is, there is this intuitive response that peop, every person has 
to these sort of moments because they're like, this is of course how we should react. Even the whole thoughts and prayers thing that we kind of like to mock a little bit now, it's the natural place we go when we hear anything has gone down where we're removed from it, where we can't be there face to face with someone, we our thoughts are with them. And even if you don't believe in God, there's this intuition that there's got to be someone I can pray to that can somehow make a difference to that person I can't be with right now. It's because it's intuitively in every single human being because everyone is made in the image of God. And so uh, there's so much that I'm proud of and I think has been incredibly beautiful over these last nine days. The banning of those semi-automatic weapons. Hallelujah, what a great move. And I tell you what, if any, 99% of Christians in New Zealand hopefully don't wrestle with this one, but for the 1% who probably aren't in the room, but please listen to my podcast, um, the Christian theology is always nonviolent because our hope is that one day all those weapons get beaten into plowshares and, and that there's no more violence in the world. And so this whole gun city thing here in Napier, I'm deeply grieved about because I'm and sure, you know, I've no dramas with farmers and hunters or whatever, but it's like, man, we are a nonviolent people. And we've got to pick our battles, but there is this thing around, you know, we are anti all of that stuff because we are trying to see that future reality of no weapons break into the present because we are a kingdom people who, who want to see that take place. And so the beauty of that response, um, there was uh, this amazing, um, amazing man uh, who uh, responded, uh, next slide please, of uh, Farid um, Ahmed, who forgave the killer uh, publicly, and and not and you know that wasn't a token thing. I watched that clip and, and talked, looked at a number of interviews. It wasn't a token thing where he's saying the right thing because he expressed empathy for the killer. He he, he acknowledged that there must have been something in his history, and he had empathy for the killer of his wife. That is an unbelievable response, and that is a very godly Christian response, even though he wouldn't profess Jesus as Lord and may go day. There's this intuition that deep down in people that actually cyclic violence is not the answer, that the way of peace and forgiveness is the only way for healing to come into our world. And so people have been reflecting the God in whose image they are made very, very well. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And we don't have to feel threatened by that as Christians. We don't have to, we should celebrate it. Ideally, we should be leading the way. And, and I'm going to push us a little bit this morning in terms of the Christian response. But, but this is a beautiful thing. And our theological worldview says it's because we're all made in the image of a good, kind, compassionate God who at his core is love. And, uh, and that is why any act of violence like we saw last violence is a violation of that Imago Day. Any life, every life for the Christian, in the Christian worldview, whether it's an unborn life or a life that's lived many years, a life from other faiths or whatever, every time someone is murdered in any way, we grieve deeply because they have dignity and value and worth because we believe they're created in the image of God. So we feel it deeply because we have this belief of a Mago day. The second point is uh, reflection is this event also speaks to our understanding that this world is deeply broken. Of course, it's deeply broken. This should never happen. And uh, it shakes us when we see this stuff happen. And the humble Christian response 
is to look within at our own lives and to see the brokenness there. We, while we may be not mass murdering terrorists, hallelujah, that moment was an accumulation of many, many little, little decisions that get made over the course of a life. And while we might not be able to empathize or, or, or kind of get our heads around the result of that decision in terms of a terrorist mass murdering act, we probably can identify with little thoughts or actions that may be at the beginning of that person's journey. So we need to look deep within at our own brokenness and pain. Um, one of the um, things that got posted around a little bit was this whole white supremacy kind of uh, racism hierarchy that looks at how something like this gets built. And I'll put the slides on our uh, Facebook page so you don't necessarily have to, um, to, to take photos if you don't want to. Um, but, you know, like it starts with some of these behaviours, uh, you know, of indifference. There are two sides to every story or apolitical beliefs or avoiding confrontation uh, or just little statements ab about another cultural race. This is around a white supremacy, uh, but you can apply this to any racial position, uh, to minimalization. Not all white people do that and, um, you know, denial of white privilege or, you know, this racism isn't a problem now and blah, blah, blah. Now, the, the reality is we do have a racism issue in New Zealand, and that's not just um, Pākehā to Māori or, or whatever, it's, it's all over the show, weaving different ways, uh, and, uh, and so I think this is a good time for Christians to once more go, we are living this fallen and broken world, and I'm part of that, and there are little actions and little thoughts and little statements I have made that thankfully aren't at that mass murdering level, but oh my gosh, they trickle down to this point where there is a connection, and I want to repent of that, and I want to acknowledge that, and I want to, and again, I'm not trying to paint a picture here where we just go, oh, this racist white supremacist country at this extreme level, that's, that's silly and stupid and not true. But the Christian, again, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the Christian response to this is to look within. Lord, we're, we never thought something like this would happen. It doesn't just happen. There's lots of little decisions and little things that can get said that foster an environment where that sort of attitude can grow. Have I said anything? Forwarded any email? Liked any comment? Have I had a thought about certain, another race or a person of a different culture that I don't understand fully? And it's to just search our hearts and repent and ask the Lord to, uh, to, uh, to help us. One of the things that utterly broke my heart is, you know, I've been on Facebook, I've been take, you know, on Facebook then like having to have little breathers because I can't handle it and then back on because it's like watching a train crash sometimes. But I saw uh, this post that I actually put on my Facebook page from a Muslim woman who um, wrote on one of Nigel Ladder's posts. Nigel's been running some great stuff and, and she said this, thank you for saying, a Muslim woman, thank you for saying what needed to be said to Nigel Ladder. It's not so much the hurtful comments that have been getting uh, uh, that we've been getting being Muslim, but the isolation we are often forced into. I'm a Muslim, a European Muslim. I speak fluent English. I'm educated and I'm professional, quite friendly. But in the past nine years in New Zealand, I don't have a single Kiwi friend. You know the kind who would pop in for coffee or go do anything together with? We did play dates with my kids. We had birthday parties, joined community groups, but nothing. My kids were called terrorists in their school. And the only other way they would have known that we are Muslim is my hijab is my kids look completely European. And so for the first two days after Friday, the first time I had to rethink over and over my decision to pop out to the shops. I'm not afraid 
afraid. I'm just not ready to face the public opinion nor the pity. The same people who would not respond to my greetings now show me some pity. Did someone need to die for that to happen? You know, I, I read that and just was heartbroken. Not, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking, you know, like you're heartbroken, you're thinking about your mate you're, that you're annoyed at because of their response to this thing or something. I wasn't thinking like that. I was heartbroken and felt, I felt this pain about where, about my life, my choices, my views towards the Muslim community. And, and I looked at that and I was like, that is a failing of the church and it's the failing of the Christian pastor. Now, that isn't the case. Now, I know I've got, I've came from Christchurch. Um, I've got a Muslim friend. You know, like you got to, you know... Um, but uh, and that was miraculous. But and nothing to do with me. It was all God. Um, but but um, Southwest Baptist or Spraden Baptist, as it's been commonly known, was was highly involved with uh, Muslim families getting resettled into Christchurch. The Anglican Diocese of Wellington has been highly involved in resettling uh, uh, refugee families, predominantly Muslim. So this is I'm not painting this brush with the whole church. I'm talking for me personally. I was like, oh man. Actually, no refugee should turn up to New Zealand and ever feel lonely, particularly when it comes to us as followers of Jesus. We should be the people that surround them with friendship and love and care. And I, so I feel like in these moments, it's like, oh man, we just want to repent and we want to look within. And we, so what we're going to do at the end of the service is we're going to come to the cross and we're going to ask for forgiveness and we're going to recognize that what happened in Christchurch is foul and wrong and should never happen and we're going to, but we're going to repent for our little racist thoughts or our lack of compassion for the marginalised. And, uh, and we need to repent because that white supremacist wasn't loved by a bunch of Christians so that the help, hate would maybe melt away. Right? I mean, it's, this is our job. So uh, we're in the season of Lent. I'm really pleased we're in the season of Lent. All of a sudden, Lent's gone up a gear for me. I'm fasting, and I hope many of you are fasting, something during Lent as we work our way to the cross to acknowledge that we are broken and we need his, we need his mercy and grace to look deeply at our humanity that often is very broken. There's beautiful Mago Day stuff in there, but there's also fallen, broken bits, and we just need to somberly own that as followers of Jesus. So we're going to come to the cross after our... Um, after our sermon today and, and just receive grace and mercy. Thirdly, it's been very interesting and I've had to do a massive rewrite of my sermon uh, about the various Christian responses and reactions to the call to prayer that was broadcast on Friday. A lot of Christians are feeling concerned about where we are heading as a nation and feel upset about having a prayer that contradicts what we believe completely and are feeling very upset about that and therefore on social media there's been a lot of stuff posted some of it helpful a lot of it not and a lot of it has deeply deeply grieved me and the main reason I'm grieved is because what we say publicly has huge missional implications I'm going to say that again what we say publicly has huge missional implications if we get it wrong when Christians say that they are offended by this call to prayer and say it publicly, it actually alienates the very people God has called us to befriend, witness, and love. As followers of Jesus, we need to be mature in how we communicate, particularly in this age of social media. And one of the questions that we need to be asking, and it's a hugely important question, is this. Am I sharing my particular view in the right context? 
Let me give this example of a cathedral to, to explain what I'm trying to say here. When you, in fact, go to the next slide. When you're outside a cathedral, uh, the stained glass window is murky and unclear and difficult to see and understand, and it's all backwards. We can't even see what's going on there. But when you are inside the cathedral, it's magnificent, it's clear, it's beautiful, it makes sense. There are certain conversations that should happen inside the cathedral because we see things a certain way. We believe in a good God who is a creator. We believe in a spiritual realm. We believe there is a way that leads to life as we walk in harmony and communion with our creator. And we believe that there is a way that leads to pain, dysfunction and brokenness if we don't follow that. But there are certain conversations that should not happen outside the cathedral because we cannot begin those conversations with the same foundational belief of a good God who is a creator. If we do not have that similar worldview, if we do not have that in common, we're going to be on completely different pages when it comes to human sexuality, when it comes to finances, what it, comes to, what it looks like to flourish as a human being. If we do not have that base understanding, we are immediately at cross purposes and are going to not understand each other. And therefore, what we talk about, discuss, what we post needs to be done with the basic acknowledgement that we live in a secular nation led by a secular humanist where different faiths now call this place home. And therefore, when we have an article or see something that we want to comment on, we need to ask ourselves, is this the right context? Is this an in-cathedral conversation or is this a public conversation? Steve Graham, an outstanding theologian who's a good friend of ours and a spiritual sort of supervisor for our church, posted something that I thought was helpful. He said in Acts 17 verse 16, when Paul says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. But then in verse 22, when Paul gets up to speak at the meeting at Aeropagus, he said, and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. Steve then said, sometimes the first thing you feel from your convictions is not actually helpful as the first thing to come out of your mouth because you want to build a bridge by finding some common ground without denying the real differences to prepare the way for a future reasoned explanation of your unique convictions. What do you see and what do you say? And so if you're going to say something on Facebook or Twitter or uh, whatever it may be, your blog, um, there's a few questions I want you to ask yourself. Uh, if, it's, if it's something you want to put out in the public space, try and put yourself in the head of a secular humanist, which is the majority of New Zealand. How does this come across? Does it make sense to the secular humanist who doesn't believe in a creator God? Does it build a bridge? Is it truth? Because we're very passionate about that, but communicated humbly and gently. Is it reaching out? Is it compassionate? Does it sound like Jesus? And in the context we are currently in, put yourself in the mindset of a Muslim refugee in this country. Your whole life you have viewed Christians with suspicion, at worst as your enemy. How does it feel when you read this? Does it make you want to talk to that person? Will this soften or harden your heart as you read it? Will this help the people who are endeavoring to build relationship for Jesus' sake? Will it help those people by you posting this? That is the question we have to ask ourselves when we have outside of cathedral conversations. I rang my friend Bob 
who's a Muslim who is now following Jesus from Christchurch this week. And I said, how are you doing? And I wanted to touch base with him. His biggest fear is what will happen to the Christians working with Muslims in Christchurch. Will that work get strained or broken because of what is happening? That is his greatest fear. Now, there are certain things I have no problem communicating if it's in the right place. If you don't like the call to prayer that has been broadcast last week, that's not going to happen again. But we've got to be prepared for these moments because they're going to happen constantly. Right? We've got to get smart here. So if it's not that, it'll be something else. Communicate wisely. Ring your mates. Let's get together and pray. Text your mates. Let's get together and pray. Flick an email to the people that are in the cathedral with you because then we, under, we understand where we're coming from. Communicate very, very wisely. <laughs> Lastly, this once more, all that we've gone through in the last nine days, reinforces the role of the follower of Jesus and the hope that we have because of him. Jesus is the way of love. It is only the way of love in Jesus. It is not fearful. It does not discriminate. In fact, this love flows to places where there is lack. The love of Jesus and the love, theoretically, of the Christian, and at its best we do that, it's like it trickles down into all of the broken, painful places and lifts it up. That's where the love of God goes. It goes to the to the broken, to the alien, to the foreign, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the, the worst of the worst. That's where the love of God is meant to seep and raise up people out of brokenness and pain and systemic uh, brokenness. And uh, this love uh, is what we are called to express. In John 9, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus lived this and calls us to follow him as we do this. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law in Matthew 22? This is 101, Christianity. Jesus replied, love the Lord with all of your heart and with your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Later, a lawyer came to Jesus and says, who is my neighbor? Let's, def- let's clear that up. Lawyers are good like that. Let's define who our neighbor is. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, for us, uh, we've even got an outfit called the, good, the, the Samaritans. That's, a, that's almost a good word these days for us. Uh, Jesus was trying to shock his audience about who the neighbor is. And in our moment in history, right now, our neighbor is two people in particular. It's our Muslim friends. It's our Muslim community. They are our neighbors. And secondly, it's white supremacists. They are our neighbors. If Jesus was standing here and heard that question once more in New Zealand in this moment, he would tell the story of the good white supremacist. The church has been very, very quiet about the call to love the white supremacist. And that is because we have failed to grasp how wide and deep and high and long and in every day, how great is the love of God. 
and that Christians are called to go to places that other people are uncomfortable to go because we are the people of love and we love and we love and it's always in the context of relationship. It's not click, click, it's love, love. It's not click, click, it's face to face. It's love, it's skin. That's where we're called to. And uh, one of our vineyard churches in Auckland has been praying. Uh, and I'm going to post this again on our, uh, Facebook, uh, our cathedral Facebook page, our private internal Facebook page. See what we're doing there? Uh, and I'm going to post the prayers that they've been praying because a lot of people are struggling to know how to pray at this point. And so they've, been, they've just got this lovely liturgy they've written to pray. And let me read an excerpt. This is part of a long list of prayers. But teach us, Lord, how to love others better. God, especially those we don't understand. Especially the Muslim community who deserve to be protected from such violence. God, hear our prayer. And for the offender, we pray for the conviction from the Holy Spirit. Unbind him from the prejudice of false beliefs and the violent supremacy that separates your children from one another. Help him, Lord, to see what he has done, who he has hurt, and how wrong his actions were. Show him that he has harmed his own flesh, his brothers and sisters who feel the same, bleed the same, and hope the same as he. And then God, as he may feel crushed under the weight of such guilt and shame before you and us, show him also your love. That your mercy may be found even on our enemies, even on those we struggle to forgive, even on the slayer of innocent lives. You do not hold back your love and grace for him. Teach us to do the same. Lord, we forgive him. This is, this is hardcore stuff. This is, this is challenging stuff. What excites me about where our nation is going, if I'm super honest, is that we're getting closer and closer to the cultural environment of the early church who did not have prayers in their parliament and who were surrounded by religions and faiths who'd completely thought, disagreed with them entirely, including the Jewish roots from which they came. And the early church thrived in that place because they grasped the radical message of love. And people were one to Jesus because they loved people and everyone else was divided. They captured this thing of love that unifies. And in the context of love, truth and conviction can start getting sorted out. In the context of community, the Holy Spirit begins to bring enlightenment and conviction. But it always starts with love. It doesn't start with conviction and truth. It starts with love. And that's been the case for your story. He didn't come and bang you around the head. He came and revealed his love to you. And then as you began to open your heart to his love, he began to bring truth, to speak truth and to highlight brokenness because he wants, he knows you can live better than that. He longs for every child of his not to live in a harmful way that hurts themselves and others. But he does it in the context of love. C.S. Lewis wrote this, There is someone I love even though I don't approve of what he does. There is someone I accept though some of his thoughts and actions revolt me. There is someone I forgive though he hurts the people I love the most. That person is me. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Treat the rest of the world you treat yourself. Paul said it like this, I could speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if I do not have love, I am a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. This is, I can't believe we read this out in weddings. It is some of the most convicting writing that Paul has written. So for all the Pentecostals, you could speak the tongues of men and angels. 
You could speak other dialects and tongues, but if you do not have love, it means nothing to God. You can have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. You could be like, at, you know, honors degree level. You could be super clever. You could be doctor, whatever. If you do not have love, it doesn't mean anything to God. You could have the gift of prophecy and you could know all these mysteries. If you don't have love, it means nothing. You can give all that you possess to the poor. You could be the greatest philanthropist that's ever lived. You could become a martyr. If you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything to God. But love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy or boast or it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. Love does not dishonor others. Why are Christians dishonoring others? Love does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is what Paul says is the apex of how the Christian lives. And so this is why when I read this tweet uh, and... um, Next slide, Stephen. Um, and I just, again, it jars me when, it, when it, I read this stuff. Obviously, I'm, trying to, I'm not going to humiliate anyone here. But people were getting upset because thousands of Christians, of course, have been murdered by radical Muslims and going, well, what about that? How come people aren't reacting to that? And I'm like, we are the followers of Jesus. We turn the other cheek. We don't care if people aren't giving us attention. We're still going to go out and love, take our prayers out of parliament. We're still going to pray for this nation. You know, churches get bombed one week and then the Sikh gets bombed the next. The Christians are going to be at the Sikh place praying with them, ministering to them, loving them, because that's the Christian way. We love our enemies and we don't look to like, hey, look to me, we're really, we've had it tough too. That's an immature Christian worldview. We are the people of love and we don't care if we get no attention or anything like that. That is not how we respond. And that's not how Jesus responded. Even on that cross, he forgave the people that murdered him. He knows betrayal. He knows pain. He knows all of that. And ultimately, he still responds in love and forgiveness and mercy. I've run out of time. I'm just going to finish with this. The reason that we are setting up a trust to do stuff in Marae Nui is is, this is, man, I'm pumped on this even more after all that's gone down because I want us to be even more passionate now about going to places where society doesn't, other parts of society don't want to go. I want to go to hang out with people that other people in society want to be distant from. That is why we're going to set up what we're going to set up in Marae Nui. We announced this last week, and if you missed that, listen to the talk, please. Hugely important for us as a church. We are going to, I'm like, even more passionate, you know, Every church has a grace on them to reach people that, and that other people won't, won't go to. And there are churches in this city, hopefully, who feel called particularly to go to Muslim. Very small population, but there may be people, churches, that have this grace to reach out. Maybe it's us, I don't know. I know this, though. We have a grace to go to Marae Nui. That's the grace on it, the favour on it, the doors are opening. It's so exciting. And it's filled with people who are like that Muslim woman that tweeted, I'm isolated. It's filled with the same sort of people. And what happens when you feel rejected and isolated is that you, it just has consequences. And so we are going to do our best for however long we're here on earth for to love and bless people 
because we are, uh, inaugurated eschatology, <laughs> uh, that future reality breaking into the present. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In that age to come, there's no more loneliness. There's no more violence. There's no uh, lack of community. The lion lays down with the lamb. That future, we're going to see break into the present because that's what Christians are called to do and live. So that's, what, that's, our, that's the hope we have. One day the world is not going to be like this. Hallelujah, that's the Christian hope. One day, heaven and earth will be reunited once more. The glory of God will cover this world like the, like the waters cover the sea. The Lord will wipe away every single tear from our eyes. That is the hope we have, and we cannot lose sight of that now. Until that day, we work to see that future reality break into the present. And that job has not changed. In fact, it's got more urgent in the last nine days. We need to take that seriously as agents of God's love, as ambassadors and representatives of Jesus of Nazareth who laid down his life. That's how much he loved us. That's, that's how much he loved us. That is who we are called to imitate. God who holds us and embraces us. So let's come and take communion this morning. Jesus' entire life was a demonstration of the true nature of God. As Jesus heals the sick, forgives the sinner, receives the outcast, restores the fallen, and supremely as he dies on a cross forgiving his killer, he reveals what God is like. To see Jesus is to see the Father. And at last we know that God is not like the thunderbolt hurtling Zeus or any of the other angry gods in the pantheon of a terrorized religious imagination. God is like Jesus, nailed to a tree, offering forgiveness. And so we come to the cross this morning and we ask for mercy and forgiveness and we receive his embrace.